HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with Katie Kiefer. That's me, your host. Um, Today we're going to be talking about antibiotics in the food system yet again. I know for some of you this is like my go-to subject, but actually there is nothing more important to talk about in terms of public health. So um, today we're going to be, uh, my guest is uh, Avinash Kar. He is an attorney with the National Resources Defense Council. Um, Avinash is, um, actually he's the attorney with the Health and Environmental Program at NRDC. He works on antibiotics and livestock, toxic air pollution, toxics in food and consumer products. Oh, we have lots to talk about there. And reducing pollution and improving efficiency in the textile supply chain in Bangladesh. Avinash previously worked at the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment, an environmental justice organization focusing on CAFOs and air pollution in California's Central Valley and on AB32. I imagine that's a piece of legislation. And while at CRPE, he also served on the Environmental Justice Advisory Committee advising the California Air Resources Board on the implementation of AB32, California's landmark global warming law. Avinash received his JD from UC Hastings College of the Law and his undergraduate degree from Williams College. Welcome to the program, Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about the program. Thank you, Katie. I'm uh, delighted to be on. <laughs> okay, great. That's fabulous. Um, so uh, on Saturday, um, the New York Times published an editorial um, uh, you know, praising the, the FDA for finally coming out with guidances number 209 and 213. Um, and I wondered if we could start the program with just uh, you giving an overview of what those guidances are and what they mean. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. A little background may be useful here. Uh, About 80% of all antibiotics sold in the U.S. are for use on cows, pigs, poultry, and other farm animals. Scientists widely agree that the misuse of antibiotics in animals is contributing to the rise of antibiotic resistance in our world, and that this uh, this increase of resistance threatens human health. So... When we become sick from infections caused by antibiotic-resistant bacteria, the antibiotics are less likely to work, 
leading to longer illnesses, more hospitalizations, use of medicines with greater side effects, and sometimes even deaths when treatments fail. So that's the context in which we are operating. Absolutely. Okay. Human use is also a part of the problem, but with antibiotic sales for farm animals being so large, we can't address the overall problem unless we also address the use of antibiotics in farm animals. Um, I'm going to stop you for a sec. I'm going to stop you for a sec because your sound quality is really bad. Oh, I'm so sorry. Where Um, are you? I'm on a headset. Is that that the problem? I think that might be the problem because there's like a lot of sort of echo and ambient noise. Okay. um, Can we change that? Sorry. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> no worries. That's totally fine. Uh, let yeah. me see if... Uh, this doesn't sound good. Let me just try without the headset. Um, Is that any better? Yes. <laughs> okay. Much. Well, I'll Thank hold you. the headset. Okay. Sorry um, about that. But... Okay. So, <laughs> go sorry on. about that. That's okay. <laughs> so, as I was saying, you know... Scientists widely agree that use of antibiotics in animals is contributing to a health threat to humans. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Human use is also a part of the problem, but with antibiotic sales for farm animals being so large, we have to address that as well in order to address the problem. And this is where the FDA comes in. After many years of doing very little, right. the FDA has made a couple of very modest moves in the recent past. That's the guidance you referred to. That's right. Guidance is number 209 and 213, which re- uh, listeners can access on the FDA website. Very easy to read them. They're not long. They're very easy to read. There's nothing mysterious about them at all. That's right. Uh, the gist of this audience is, is uh, sorry, of these guidances is that they recommend that drug manufacturers volunteer to give up labels on the antibiotics they sell right. that allow the use of these antibiotics for speeding up animal growth. Mm-hmm. However, these guidances continue to endorse the very similar use of antibiotics to compensate for crowded and dirty conditions. Right. And also, let's point out that the, the, why this is in the news again is because 25 of the 26 drug companies that produce these drugs that are used in animal medicine have agreed to relabel their drugs so that they are no longer sold for growth promotion. They are only sold for disease prevention. Am I accurate there? You're absolutely accurate. So basically that means they can continue to use these antibiotics to compensate for the conditions. And mind you, FDA is very clear that these animals are not sick. So that label, that disease prevention label, won't go away. And our concern is that what this will mean is antibiotic use in animals that are not sick will continue, but just under a different name. The, exactly. the label will change, but the use will not. Right. So um, what is the difference between guidances and regulations? Let's, let's uh, that's a great that. question. Yeah. Uh, guidances are recommendations. They're not binding. There's no legal consequences that flow directly from a failure to abide by the recommendations. Regulations, on the other hand, are binding. Uh, failure to comply is a violation of law. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, these uh, the c- companies you mentioned, the 25 of the 26 companies volunteer to go along with FDA's guidance. FDA has said it will take about three years to implement the guidance. Right. Nothing binds the companies to stick with the plan during those three years. Right. They could change their mind at any point until the label change is made final through regulation. Of course, that's not to say they will change their mind, but they could. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So now to go back to this editorial, which I'm sure a lot of people saw on Saturday in the New York Times, um, it praised the drug companies for taking this step step in relabeling their drugs and agreeing to remove growth promotion as one of the purposes for which their drugs can be used. But why does the New York Times and even Pew Center feel that this is such a big step in the right direction? And why does NRDC disagree? Uh, I I was really surprised by Pew. Agreement. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I was really surprised that Pew came out and said, oh, yeah, this is a great first step. I mean, I, I completely disagree with that, and NRDC apparently does as well. So why do you guys well, disagree? 
Yeah, so I think there's probably less disagreement here than might appear, because I think this is mostly a matter of emphasis. Few has said, for instance, that there's a lot more that needs to be done, and we agree. Uh, you know, the New York Times is right that FDA's actions are a modest step in the right direction. Uh, after a very long time of doing very little, FDA is starting to do something however small. So people do see that as encouraging. However, from our perspective, this step, this step fails a very core test it is unlikely to significantly reduce the use of antibiotics in farm animals. And that's really the, at the crux of what we're talking about. Right. And that's because of the loophole we were talking about earlier. We think that loophole is a really big problem because it makes it appear as if progress is being made when it probably isn't. Delays the solution longer mm-hmm. and allows the problem of resistance to get worse. Mm-hmm. And these are really important medicines for human medicine. So that's why we don't think... Uh, FDA is going far enough, and we think this uh, doesn't really address the problem because it's not really going to reduce antibiotic use from our perspective. Yeah, and I think that it's worth noting that um, at present, um, we really have no, and correct me if I'm wrong, Avi, because you, you probably know better than I do, but to my knowledge, there are no mechanisms by which we are able to calculate or measure the amount of antibiotics saved through for through that the amount of pounds that are sold per year into a particular exactly right. uh, into a particular sector in this case the agricultural sector um, I want to quickly move on to something that um, dr. Scott heard who's been a, a guest on my program before he's a veterinarian from Iowa State University um, he uh, has uh, come out saying um, both in print and in private that the reason that these guidances are, are a good idea as opposed to actual legislation is that if uh, these measures were legislated into law, meaning that there was compliance was compulsory, that this would result in a number of lawsuits um, by pharmaceutical companies and by animal agricultural companies um, protesting these measures, and that the legislation would then be locked up in court for many years to come, and the problem would persist even longer than the three years that we're hoping will kind of more or less solve it. What, how do you respond to that? Uh, I'm a little confused by it. I don't completely understand that. <laughs> the industry is so willing to go along with FDA's recommendations to give up growth promotion use. Why would it fight binding rules requiring exactly the same thing? Um, I don't know. But that's that. <laughs> he's not the only person who's had this position, which is that actually this is a great thing that these are voluntary guidelines rather than law, because then there won't be any uh, you know problem with lawsuits locking up this legislation or locking up these measures any longer than necessary. So right. I, I think you make a good point. Um, you, the NRDC has taken um, certain actions uh, in terms of using um, antibiotics as growth promotants. Uh, these are in, in the sense of bills that are being legislated both in California and I hope uh, nationally. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. Um, so right now there are a couple of bills in the federal legislature um, one is called the Preservation of Antibiotics for Medical Treatment Act that's been introduced by Representative Slaughter. Uh, and there's a Senate bill, which is the Preventing Antibiotic Resistance Act, which was introduced by Senator Feinstein. And both of those bills would phase out the use of uh, antibiotics in animals that are not sick. Um, and I think those are important pieces of legislation. We support them. Um, and here in California, there's a bill that was introduced by Assemblymember Mullen, uh, that would basically, that's modeled on those bills at the federal level and would also require that for meat sold in California, the use of antibiotics in animals that are not sick be phased out. Uh, it would also require that for any meat sold in California, the use of antibiotics be reported to the state so that we can monitor and track 
the use and trends and where uh, changes could be made. And again, let's 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 reiterate the fact that at the present time, there is no mechanism for tracking the use of antibiotics in livestock agriculture. Correct. Yeah, so what we don't have is used data. So mm-hmm. we don't know how it's being used, exactly where it's being used, exactly what purposes it's being used for. What we do know right now uh, is basically sales data, as you mentioned. It's how much is being sold for uh, animals and which classes of antibiotics are being sold for animals. So we know that penicillins, for instance, are sold at X hundred thousand pounds, for instance, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But we don't know whether they're used for disease, uh, for growth promotion, for disease prevention, or for actual therapeutic treatment, correct? No, we do not know that. And that's partly because a lot of these drugs are approved for all three of those purposes, so, right. uh, or at least a couple of them. So it's hard to separate out what is being used for when you look at sales data. One thing that was interesting to me when I was looking over the NRDC website, I noticed, um, I think about a year ago, there was a... Uh, excuse me, there was a press release that, um, that said that a lot of these drugs at this point point in time would not have been approved. Um, they right. they were approved 20 or 30 years ago by FDA, but if they were brought up for approval now, they would not pass muster. Can you just uh, describe that for just a second? Like, what, is, what does that mean, and, and how come they can, why can't we, you know, change that now? Uh, thanks. That's a really great question. Uh, we put out a report in January that looked at this issue, uh, and basically, uh, FDA did a review in the 2000s of penicillins and tetracyclines that were approved many years ago, mm-hmm. decades ago, as a matter of fact. And it went back and looked at whether the use of these antibiotics in feed uh, was shown to be safe, that is, whether it posed a risk to human health. What they concluded, they, they looked at 30 different uh, penicillins and tetracyclines mm-hmm. that are used in animal feed, and they concluded that none of these antibiotics would likely be uh, approved today if they were up for approval because there's not enough evidence showing that they are safe, as they're required to show. Safe in the in sense... In fact... Go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 go yeah, ahead. In fact, about 18 of them, they even concluded were high risk, and still they haven't done anything about it, and they're supposed to withdraw approval for drugs when they're not shown to be safe and effective. Um, and, you know, we brought a lawsuit over this in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, in that lawsuit, we challenged FDA's failure to withdraw approval for penicillins and tetracyclines in animal feed. Even as far back as 1977, FDA had concluded these uses posed a risk to human health mm-hmm. and had proposed to withdraw approval for these drugs, but then just never followed through. So our lawsuit tried to basically went to, we went to court to force them to act on those findings, and the district court agreed with us, the federal district court agreed with us, and uh, ordered FDA to discontinue the uses of anti- these particular antibiotics, penicillins and tetracyclines in animal feed, mm-hmm. unless drug manufacturers showed that they were safe. Um, there was a second part to the case I can tell you more about in a second, but basically FDA appealed that decision. We're awaiting a decision at the appeals court level at this point. Amazing. So, I mean, in a way, it's sort of interesting to me that this goes through the legislative process, or excuse me, the uh, the courts, and um, a judge who theoretically is impartial does not see um, the validity of your position or does not but actually doesn't the court support did. this. It did. Oh, so and now yes, it's going the through court the court agreed of appeal. with us. Oh, so the, the FDA is appealing this. Okay, thank you for clarifying that for me. Uh, yeah, no, no, sorry, no problem. Let me be. Let me try that again, just so I'm clear. Um, the the court agreed with us that when FDA found that the use of penicillins and tetracyclines in animal feed is not shown to be safe and that it poses a risk to human health, I that see. once it made that finding, it was obligated to remove 
the approval for these antibiotics in animal feed unless drug manufacturers showed in a hearing that they were actually safe, which we think they'll have a very, very hard time doing. Um, <laughs> and so basically the court agreed with us that, you know, FDA made this finding back in 1977 and should have acted on it mm-hmm. and ordered them to act on it, but uh, FDA has appealed that decision. Incredible. Um, how do you respond to the notion that the industry uh, often repeats that using antibiotics is um, very expensive, that um, not all producers use this to, you know, prophylactically treat their animals, that antibiotics are, are judiciously used, and so forth and so on? I mean, there is there are reams and reams of, of articles and editorials on the meat trade paper websites that people can look at that justify the use of antibiotics and also say that really there is no actually no smoking gun. There is no specific study that proves incontrovertibly that antibiotic use in livestock leads to antibiotic resistance. How, how, how does NRDC respond to that? Um, that's a two, I think there's two a lot of question evidence. there. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> no, no, that's fine. So I think there's a couple of different things to ask. So let me start with uh, whether this is a problem or not and the evidence for that. Okay. I think there's a lot of evidence that the use of antibiotics in animals is contributing to uh, adverse health effects in humans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're in very, very good company on this. I mean, the CDC has said that. Mm-hmm. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the World Health Organization has said that. The American Association of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the American Public Health Association. I could go on and on. Unfortunately, Um, the CDC did not actually point the finger at animal agriculture, which they were very quick to... to praise the CDC for, and I, I've, I've actually read the report, and it does not specifically say that animal agriculture is a primary culprit in the uh, rise of anti- multidrug-resistant pathogens. I thought that was uh, a, think, really well, unfortunate. No, actually, they did say something, and I can, I can uh, uh, you know, they said that the use of antibiotics in animals is contributing to the problem, the antibiotic-resistant problems um, in, in, in humans. I think they acknowledged that. I don't think they put a percentage to it, um, right. but... They did say was part of the problem of antibiotic resistance. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can find a quotation for you, if you like, in a little bit and come back to you on that. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, <Do> yes, <laughs> so, I mean, the CDC, the World Health Organization, all those medical institutions that are referred to, they've all said that the use of antibiotics in animals is contributing to the overall problem. Uh, there was a study last year in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. that uh, l- looked at, uh, basically concluded that the closer you live to uh, farms that were treated with swine manure or to swine facilities themselves, mm-hmm. the more likely you were to be infected with antibiotic-resistant skin infections, including MRSA. Right. And there was a study earlier this year uh, out of Iowa that looked at the levels of antibiotic-resistant bacteria carried by people, the colonization of people by antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And again, they found that people living closer to animal facilities, uh, swine facilities, had higher levels of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Fascinating. Because that's, that's, that's one of the big issues, is whether or not humans and animals trade bacteria. And that's been something that the industry has said, if I'm, you know, I, I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that their position is that there is very little evidence supporting that humans and, and animals trade bacteria, and therefore the uh, rise of antibiotic-resistant drug uh, pathogens, such as MRSA, which is methicillin, staph, aureus, 
resistance, sorry, staphylococcus aureus, that this particular uh, disease is really um, from hospitals and that we've mm -hmm. given it to pigs and not sort of vice versa, which I thought was an interesting uh, position to take. It's an interesting position, but here's how, you know, I think if you look at the scientific literature, you'll find that that's not really the case. As I said, all these medical and scientific organizations are on one side of the issue, um, and the industry's on the other side. Uh, the basically, the once resistant bacteria are generated on the farm, they can leave in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. They can get out on in air, soil, and water, on workers, through meat, um, and also, actually, bacteria can share their resistance characteristics with other bacteria, with totally different species of bacteria. And this can happen in all these other mediums that we're talking about, including the human gut and the animal gut. Right. So to be able to say that this does not happen, I think that's uh, – I'd love to see proof of that. <laughs> um, Avi, we're going to take a short break right now um, and uh, do a sponsor drop, and then we'll be right back to talk more about antibiotic resistance and especially about these guidances and the drug companies that have agreed to um, voluntarily change their labels. So stay with us, folks. Today's music is Leaving by Dead Stars on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit TabardIn.com. We're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You on uh, the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. On the phone with me is uh, uh, Avinash Kar, uh, who is an attorney with the um, National Resources Defense Council. We're talking about antibiotics and the recent uh, news that 25 out of 26 pharmaceutical companies supplying antibiotics to the livestock agriculture sector have agreed to change the labels on their drugs to uh, essentially shut down supposedly the use of antibiotics 
products as growth promotants. Now, yesterday, on, on Saturday, the NY Times published a really interesting editorial saying that this was great news. And then yesterday, an editorial came out in Drover's Cattle Network, one of my very favorite um, journals about the meat industry. It's written by industry insiders, and it's it's a really informative and interesting um, publication. Um, the author, Chuck Jolly, is an industry expert and a spokesperson for the meat industry. He's been in the industry for many, many years. And some of the things that he said really struck me as... Um, I don't know how to describe it. It was just like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? <laughs> really, I really had that reaction. So let me start with, um, I'm going to quote it. It says, some fact-free hand ringers see a rise in antibiotic-resistant bacteria and immediately demand that all such medicines be banned from agricultural use and that we follow the European model, ban all non-therapeutic uses of antibiotics on food animals. They seem to love the doomsday scenario, gleefully spouting off reports about the worst of all possible worlds, the great black plague that nearly obliterated Europe in the 14th century. So... I mean, how how do you respond when the industry is calling people like the NRGC, the Pew, the WHO as a hand wringer? I mean, what? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, this is the propaganda that's going out to the cattle industry, the pork industry, the poultry industry, and these people are lapping it up. I mean, I think the only thing we can do is point out that we're in some very good company. You know, yeah. I was talking about the CDC earlier. This is what they said. Up to half of antibiotic use in humans and much of antibiotic use in animals is unnecessary and inappropriate and makes everyone less safe. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, there's a broad coalition of prominent medical and public health groups uh, that said overuse and misuse of important antibiotics in food animals must end in order to protect human health. And the groups that were on this letter included the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American College of Preventive Medicine, the American Medical Association, the American Public Health Association, and on and on. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're in some very good company. Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, I wanted to say one more thing about um, about Chuck Jolly's uh, note. Um, he quotes Dr. Richard Raymond, who's also been a regular guest on this show. I like uh, Dick Raymond a lot. He's he's really been a great mentor for me in some ways. Um, he is the former USDA FSIS undersecretary, and he is currently a consultant to several pharmaceutical companies. And he dismisses this uh, this concern about antibiotics is mostly stuff and nonsense. And then he is quoted as saying, it remains to be seen if this action actually will decrease antibiotic resistance in pathogens affecting human health. It has not done so after 10 years of a similar ban in Denmark. And my personal belief is that this will not affect human health at all, but time will tell. So do you have, um, do you have any insight on what happened in Denmark, on the experiment in Denmark, and what the numbers have been in terms of multidrug resistance pathogens either increasing or decreasing post-ban? Sure. Uh, Denmark has seen a reduction in the presence of resistant bacteria in meat and in animals, and the levels of resistance in their meat is lower than on meat imported from other countries. However, Denmark, you know, the borders are not impermeable. It, right. You know, resistance still comes in from other places. Human use still contributes to resistance. And once you generate resistance, wherever it may be generated, it doesn't mean that it will automatically go away. So the human use picture is a lot more complicated. But on meat and in animals, we can already see declines in the levels of resistance in Denmark. Uh, and, you know, there's an ex experiment from 1976 uh, that was, there's a paper that was published that showed that reducing the use of antibiotics in animals can make a difference. Uh, in that study, 
um, the scientists introduced antibiotics to a farm where antibiotics hadn't been used previously, and they found that as the antibiotics were introduced, the levels of resistance in the in the chicken and the workers who worked with the chicken went up. And when they removed the antibiotics from the system over time, that resistance declined. Now, that's in a pretty controlled environment, relatively speaking, but, you know, it shows that it can make a difference. We're not adding to the burden of antibiotic-resistant bacteria out there, and, and I think Denmark is showing that that's also possible. And, you know, overall, I think it's misleading for Dr. Raymond to suggest that antibiotic is used in animals uh, does not affect human health. As I was saying before, there's very broad agreement in the scientific and medical community that animal use of antibiotics is contributing to the rise of resistance and that resistance uh, threatens human health. Uh, including especially these last two papers I mentioned, one in Pennsylvania showing that the closer you live to swine facilities and farms treated with swine manure, the more likely you are to be uh, infected with antibiotic-resistant skin infections, including MRSA. Which is, by the way, quite terrifying. <laughs> it's really scary, really scary and very, very hard to treat. I mean, really hard to get rid of. I mean, and it used yeah. to be in hospitals, it was a fatal thing. I mean, if you got MRSA, you were, you were dead meat. I mean, now I guess they've figured out how to treat the skin infections, which are slightly different from having the systemic infection. I'm not quite sure how that works. But anyway, yeah. um, back, to the, um, back to this um, interesting uh, editorial by Mr. Jolly, who I was hoping would call in today, but apparently he was in meetings um, and unable to um, to join us. But um, he uh, he says that the inference, of course, is that the core problem is human usage, not animal usage. That's in reference to the CDC report that you just quoted. Um, and he's saying that Mama might insist that little Junior be prescribed a useless Z-Pack for his viral-caused sniffles, but a penny-pinching rancher will never dose his cattle with expensive antibiotics unless it's absolutely necessary for disease control. But that's absolutely not true, right? I mean, if that's they've been true. using it for... I mean, that's why I was going down... I was referring to that earlier with Dr. Hurd, who said the same thing. Oh, oh, they're never going to waste their money on antibiotics that they don't absolutely need. And yet... I mean, I guess if you need to turn a profit, then you need to use antibiotics, right? Because the profit margins are pretty small in uh, I, I don't think animals. that's necessarily true either. I think, you know, you don't need antibiotics. And uh, the people who are showing it all the time, you know, there are producers in the U.S. who are producing uh, meat without the use of antibiotics. And in Denmark, there's an entire industry that's removed the use of antibiotics uh, on animals that are not sick. And they're producing more animals than before. While yes. having, you know, they, they reduced use by about 50%. Yep. They've increased production by about 12%. It hasn't affected food prices. It hasn't made food less safe. In fact, uh, you know, they've reduced resistance in meat and animals. So, uh, and they've done all this without the, uh, any major impact on the industry. I think uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, Organization, estimated the cost might have gone up by about 1% in switching practices. Um, and uh, so the industry seems to be doing just fine. And the kind of things they're doing are not rocket science. We're talking about things like better cleaning, a little more space for animals, weaning the animals later, vaccinations. Right. I mean, these are things that are... Uh, better management practices. Yeah, I mean, even Dr. Hurd, uh, when he and I and uh, Emily Meredith from the Animal Agriculture Alliance wrote an edit uh, a blog post for the Huffington Post together, and he said, I said, what would you do if you didn't have antibiotics? He said, better sanitation, probiotics, and vaccinations. Boom, done, problem yep. solved. So, and the one thing to note about that. Mm -hmm is that the Danish system is not like a pasture-based system. It's an industrial system of rearing animals. 
That's right. And they've managed to eliminate the use of antibiotics in animals that are not sick and are thriving. Yes. So it can be done here, too. It can be done here. And, you know, the question has to be asked is, like, why is the industry fighting tooth and nail to hang on to this when, in fact, consumer, um, you know, consumer interest and consumer concerns are really driving a very strong message to them, which is that we don't want to buy that kind of meat anymore. You know, like people are getting the message. And in my opinion, as a, if I were a meat producer, I'd be going over to the antibiotic-free model right away and charging a premium for it because people are willing to pay. I think more and more meat is showing up as antibiotic-free or raised without antibiotics in the market. Uh, and that's a good thing. And I think, you know, if uh, consumers continue to demand meat produced without antibiotics, we're going to see more and more movement in that direction. But that won't solve the entire problem. In, you know, the market uh, can't address all of the uses that are problematic, just as the organic label can't uh, deal with all the problems that are out there in agriculture. Right. So uh, I think, you know, consumers are definitely a part of the problem, and we need to keep putting, asking for better produced meat and uh, holding companies to higher standards. But we also need laws and regulations that really require the prudent use and ensure the prudent use of antibiotics so that we're not squandering them for slightly cheaper uh, meat that is produced on facilities that are not taking the kind of better management practices that they should be. You bring up the interesting and excellent point about prudent and judicious use, which is something that the meat industry um, touts a lot, and they actually have on some of their websites, like the American um, Meat Institute, no, the American, uh, the Animal Health Institute, um, has an has a uh, definition of judicious use, which I thought was really interesting and very comprehensive. Um, and the thing is, is that one these guidances also call for. We didn't really explain what they are ultimately, but um, one of the guidances calls for the fact that a vet a vet must be writing prescriptions for the use of antibiotics on farm, and that um, is part of the whole judicious use aspect of this. And one of the things that when I was researching for this program, I looked on the FDA website and I found that, and this is something again that Scott Hurd mentioned, um, there are hardly any large animal vets. So if there are hardly any large animal vets, and we have literally billions of animals in confinement uh, who have up till now been routinely treated with antibiotics, how are we going to practice oversight of so-called judicious use? And how are these vets going to be able to um, write those prescriptions? How will farmers be able to get those prescriptions? I mean, just to to give you a a quote from the FDA website, there are counties in the U.S. where there are greater than 25,000 food animals and no food animal veterinarians. These areas are most common in the central U.S. I mean, who's going to be writing the scripts and how are we going to be able to regulate that? Thanks, Katie. Thank you for bringing us back to the guidance. As you said, the guidance uh, does two things, uh, just because you had said, you know, we didn't finish the discussion on those. Um, one is it uh, encourages companies to give up growth promotion labels, as you mentioned. The other is that continues to allow uh, the continuing use of antibiotics for so-called disease prevention purposes as long as the vets are involved. Um, and as you said, there's a shortage of vets. But if we stop using antibiotics for preventive purposes, which we think is an inappropriate use, FDA explicitly acknowledges these animals are not sick. Mm-hmm. Then if we stop using, and then this we understand to be the majority of the use in animals, then there will be a lot less burden on veterinarians to dispense antibiotics for animals. 
Uh, and the, the fewer, the, the, with the lesser demand, the, uh, the veterinarians that are there will be better able to respond to the problem. That doesn't mean they'll be able to respond to the shortage completely. But we need to, you know, in addition to that, we need to uh, have incentives in place to encourage more veterinary students to go into the field and to uh, serve in the community where there is greatest need. But we can start by making sure we're not uh, roping vets into dealing uh, with preventive uses which are not necessary. Absolutely. I, I mean, this is just, there's this is such a sort of manifold and complex problem because of the way we have allowed um, animal husbandry to evolve in this country in terms of creating these, um, you know, I know they hate to use the word factory farm, but intensive farming um, <laughs> You know, intensive farming operations or confined area feeding operations. I mean, it's it's like you sort of almost really can't um, unpack one thing without discovering a whole Pandora's box of other problems. And to me, the shortage of veterinarians who deal with large animals or food animals is just one of the many manifold problems that the industry has to address and deal with. And um, it's you know, it'll be interesting to see how they manage this. Um, I wanted to go back to um, something that you um, mentioned about foster farms being, because uh, we only have a few minutes left. Um, you and uh, many other people wrote a letter to foster farms because of their uh, supposed attitude towards antibiotics and asked them to be a leader. Can you just talk for a second about that and, and sort of extrapolate that to larger companies like, say, Cargill or Tyson? Sure. Um, you know, last year there was a... a Salmonella outbreak that many people heard about made Absolutely. a lot of people sick. That salmonella was found to be drug resistance that may have contributed to some of the increased levels of hospitalizations that were seen. Yes. Um, the uh, you know foster farms has not told us how they use antibiotics and they have not committed to using these antibiotics in a way that does not promote antibiotic resistance. And this letter that went from about 30 plus organizations to foster farms asked them to do a couple of things. It asked them to both disclose the antibiotic use practices and to commit to better antibiotic stewardship so that they're using antibiotics only on animals that are not sick uh, or to control disease outbreaks in limited circumstances. I mean, only animals that are sick. On the premises. Right, right, right. Only animals that yeah. are sick, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Have so, they responded uh, you know, to that? That's what we're asking them to do, and I think the industry needs to turn in that direction. We've got examples both here and abroad. You know, Chipotle is a... A large company that's selling meat all around the country, and all their meat is, uh, well, I think, yeah, I think almost all their meat is produced without the use of antibiotics. All except uh, the beef. They cannot supply enough beef. There right, is not enough right. beef for them to use yeah. antibiotic-free beef. So, I mean, there's an opportunity there for somebody, except, you know. So. <laughs> uh, but basically, you know, there's more and more efforts to uh, consumers turning to meat raised without antibiotics. And we've got lots of examples of people doing it. Now we need more people to uh, commit to making those practices a reality. And so um, we're, we just have a couple minutes left, so I want you to um, just mention to people again the names of those uh, pieces of legislation, PAMTA, DATA, which was introduced by Dr. Uh, by Henry Waxman, and um, what was the third one, Diane Feinstein's bill? It's PARA, uh, PARA, Preventing Antibiotic Resistance Act. Right. So people should check in. I mean, we do have the power. Let's face it. I mean, you can vote with your dollars and you can vote with your vote. 
And the more you write into local legislation, local legislators or support organizations like the NRDC, right, um, the more you can turn this boat around. Um, tell us a little bit about the website. Where can people access more information here? Uh, you can go to www.nrdc.org, and uh, that's NRDC's website, and uh, you can find more information about our work there. Absolutely. I urge people to do this. I mean, this is literally the public health crisis of our age. And I've been reporting on this for four years now, people. And finally, the mainstream media has caught up to it. Um, and I'm really hoping to see. And it's encouraging to see that the that the industry, um, despite their kicking and screaming, is is you know, slowly coming around to it. So it's really a matter of just demanding from your grocery stores, I want more choices in antibiotic-free products, um, and talking to your legislators and telling them that you want them to vote that way. And uh, maybe in the next couple of years, before this three-year trial period elapses, we can make some changes in the way that we do business in this country. Nobody. One of the things that really upsets me about the meat industry is they consistently say that we are trying to shut them down. Is that... In the last moment of this program, Avi, can you tell me, is the NRDC looking to uh, end the meat industry as we know it now? Not at all. Um, you know, I personally eat meat. I just look for meat raised without antibiotics. Um, and, you know, the idea is to improve the way we produce meat so that we're not squandering the effectiveness of these essential and life-saving medicines. And we look to examples like Denmark where they have done it, where they've done it with an intensive system of agriculture and it's with better management practices. That's what we want to see. That's right. So thanks so much for your time today, Avi. I really enjoyed it. I hope you'll come back. Um, I know we're going to be talking again, maybe not with you, but with another colleague about the economics of taking antibiotics out of the food system. Um, that'll be coming up sometime in July, I think, when your paper is published. Is that what I heard? I think that's right. Yeah, and uh, and you and I will be in constant contact so that you can tell Thank me what's going on. Thank you very much for having lessons. me on. You betcha. Thank you. And thanks to my sponsor, Tabard Inn, and thanks to my engineer, and we'll see you next week with another episode of What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, Katie Kiefer. So long for now, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.